0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bonus episode. My name is Ashley Game. I am your host on the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. This is our first bonus episode. Normally, our after-the-episode would come out today, so we are pushing that episode to come out next week because we have a very special guest and event we would like to promote. We talked to Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman, and he has written several books on the opioid epidemic and healthcare. He is a healthcare attorney in Los Angeles, and the event that we are talking about is called America's Opioid Crisis, Where Do We Go From Here? It is Wednesday, July 24th, 2019, from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's going to be in Westwood in West LA, 1100 Glendon Avenue on the 15th floor. You can find information if you Go to Eventbrite and look up Health 2.0 LA and Nelson Hardiman. Admission is free, and we would really love to have you. The speakers on the panel are going to be Matthew Stout, CEO and co-founder of Applied VR, and Dr. Stephen Grinstead, consultant, trainer, and coach, who has a ton of background and experience in treating some of the most difficult cases in chronic pain. I will also be on the panel as the co founder and VP of Lion Rock Recovery. And our moderator will be Harry Nelson himself, of Nelson Hardiman. And Harry is going to talk to us a little bit about his background, what brought him to the industry, and some of his personal opinions and ideas around healthcare addiction and even parenting. So, without further ado, please enjoy our bonus episode with Mr. Harry Nelson. Well, I want to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Harry, can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, you've done all this amazing work. You're an expert in, you know, your your field. What is it that drove you to want to be involved with addiction treatment and the recovery world? You know, I, I would say...
1: I started. I, I started off my career working for like large medical centers, and the work was super interesting. Being in healthcare was like when HIPAA was starting, and I was learning all the rules around clinical research and Medicare. And then I came to California in 2001, and I started working with. I made a flip to work with doctors getting in trouble before the medical board, and I found that I was really drawn to this group of doctors who were in recovery. Who had gotten into trouble uh many of them for self-prescribing and with issues around addiction and i found i really related to them you know personally like i had not i hadn't had a substance issue myself but i had i related to them through the lens of like just struggle a lifelong struggle with disordered eating and like experience of like as a teenager of compulsive gambling yeah. and i found that like i totally related to these people and i felt like there was incredible i found them deeply inspiring and so this group of doctors sort of slow brought me in as they were getting more and more. A lot of them didn't start off to do addiction medicine, but after they had their own addiction issues, they started doing addiction medicine and working with outpatient and residential and other addiction treatment programs. And they needed a lawyer who understood the regulatory environment. So they started bringing me into it. So I, I, that was sort of how I got into it. And then I think what changed for me was normally lawyers like me are really focused on business issues and f- preventing fraud and and i found that over time i would i started seeing more and more cases where people would call me and they'd say we just had a patient die we just had somebody we had a resident die we had somebody who just discharged a couple of days ago and their uh, girlfriend found them with a needle in their arm and and it was like it's it, and it really i found that the work all of a sudden became you know focusing on safety issues of how do you make sure that your admissions your discharge your operations are are, are were operating in a way that We're keeping people alive. And I felt I really started to feel a sense of mission. I couldn't believe how much this was happening all over the place. And it, it like, on one level, it was uh, like very meaningful work for me to be able to get in and help people address these issues. But on another level, it was like horrific that this is a real thing that there was actually a need for people like me to come in and give legal advice because it was happening enough. So that it, it really changed me and made me very passionate about doing something to not just make a living advising in this space but to actually try to make an impact.
0: Yeah, that's 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 awesome. And I'm so glad to hear that, that you were able to find, you know, passion in this because I feel like this work is so you know, it can be so painful like getting those calls and it can be so difficult that if you're not passionate about it, you won't wanna stick around and do it. There's easier ways to make a living, right?
1: That's for sure. I, and the other thing I you know, I, I really believe that the more if you really are honest with yourself and you look the issues of addiction are like all around us. And I think it's one of this is like fundamentally one of the most pressing uh, crises that we're facing today, you know, far beyond just uh, issues like the opioid crisis is the, the issue of like people, the level of not just people dying, but of, of suffering that's out there showing up in suicide, anxiety, depression, beyond even beyond addiction. And and like we, we need to change the conversation around it. So I, I, I think I mean, to me, this is as pressing an issue as there is out there. And I, I, I hope that more people, you know, I'm, I love being in the recovery community and being with people who are focused on these issues because they already get it. But I think the work, part of the work is convincing, is making sure that more people are pulled into this this conversation.
0: Absolutely. and And I think a key piece here is, In the recovery community, so often we need a liaison, someone who understands deeply the community and what the alcoholics and addicts and and the treatment centers deal with. Who can also speak to corporate healthcare and speak the language of corporate healthcare and speak the language of treatment center of recovery. Sounds like you really were able to get that. I'm curious about what was it about coming up against these doctors that you found so inspiring, the ones that brought you in, what was it that you related to and that really changed, made a shift for Harry?
1: You know, I I felt like there was a level of honesty. I feel like there, you know, there was like, there was a level of reality of just people who were really talking about what was really happening in their lives, who were being just open and honest with me in a way that like sort of Gave, you know and, and I and I, I it's funny I I think we I I operate as a lawyer in an industry where so many people are just trying to impress you with how on top of everything they are, and how you know, I, I was all of a sudden working with these doctors who were being so vulnerable about what was going on in their lives, and I started to really see it for a, being a, a courageous and for for something to aspire to in my in myself to get out of denial. And I really and I and I just I felt like that was that's something that was that that I I sort of found to be really different than you know the the other people that I was working with. Um, and to this day really has like been a model for me of, of the kind of change that I, I I'm trying to make personally and, you know, in myself and my organization and, and, and everybody I, I come into contact with.
0: Yeah. The beauty of our industry is that the level of emotional vulnerability and connection is the norm. It is the norm to speak about, you know, what's going on with us and, and the human condition. And in so many other work environments, that's not the case. It's 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 about hiding those things.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I, I there were people who have, you know, shared stories of like, I, I mean, I see... I who have come like to within a hair's breadth of not being with us anymore. And I think there's also a sense of mission that I that, that comes out that, that I sense uh, so many people in recovery have. And I and I've come to feel it myself. And it's really, you know, if you it, it really it, it becomes a feeling of not just feeling blessed to still be here in spite of the challenges, but like feeling a real sense of urgency about doing something to make a difference in other people's lives.
0: Absolutely. Can you? You wrote a book about the opioid crisis and also chronic pain, which I think is a really important, interesting piece of the puzzle. Can you tell me and us a little bit about what? Why is it important to talk about chronic pain?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I. So you know, personally, in my work, I was working not just with doctors in addiction, but with doctors treating pain, with hospitals that were uh, dealing with issues around patients and detox. And with pharmacies, with uh, uh, with addiction treatment programs, with all these different entities um, on different sides of this crisis, and I started feeling like uh, the conversation was really siloed in unhealthy ways, so that people weren't people would think of the opioid crisis as just being about overdose deaths and not really connected to the state of our addiction treatment system, and they would think of the pain management uh, uh, ch- challenge as uh, as a totally separate conversation. And I wanted to get out there the point that this was really one interwoven issue and that it wasn't just an issue of of, of aggressive, deceptive marketing by drug companies or of, uh, of bad doctors, that this was really a problem of multiple points of system failure involving our system of insurance. The fact that doctors are sort of, you know, incentivized to treat people with medication, uh, broken regulatory agencies. That there were a lot of pieces that needed fixing. And then what happened? That was sort of the book I started off to write. But what happened was I was giving a lot of talks as I was writing the book to test the material out, and I started getting attention from some national public health advocates who really liked the message, and they invited me into conversations with some of the high, highest level with the highest level regulators at all of these federal agencies. And I woke up to. A bigger problem was that even as you start looking at what our what, what our health system and our government were doing to address the issue, they weren't getting to this underlying crisis, social crisis, right? It, you know, for me, the big issue that came up was if you it, there's a study that came out of the University of Pittsburgh last year that said that if you go back 40 plus years, you you can put the o- opioid crisis into a larger graph that go, goes back much further of all these different sub epidemics of substance use, and and they all add up to year over year an exponential increase in the level of overdose deaths and so when you when you look at that like it means that it doesn't no matter how much we do work we do at getting more narcan out there for first responders or no matter how much we spread suboxone no matter how much we do on all of these issues that are all valid issues that need attention they're not going to drive they're not going to affect the underlying problem like we're until we get to the the issues beneath you know the mother of the problem Uh, We're not going to do anything. So that was really what the book, ultimately, I felt like that was a critical message. And we need to change the conversation, you know, not to the exclusion of how to deal with the opioid-specific problem, but to get to the the bigger issue of of this underlying crisis.
0: Yeah, that's where you and I um, definitely connect uh, deeply, which is that this is not a singular problem. This is not, you know, I, it's like so often I see people go into, you know, a, a doctor and they that doctor specializes in one thing and one thing only. And then, you know, oh, you have a sleep problem and, and it's, okay, we're gonna talk about just that. Oh, well, oh, it's related to some sort of pain. Oh, you're gonna need a completely different doctor for that. And really we're not treating this as a you know the, the underlying problem. And you know, as I know in recovery and in you know in the rest of the world, we have to treat the underlying problem or we don't get the recovery. And the same it goes for the systems that we've built. And we really are only treating things at the acute level, at least in America. And you know you and I talked about this that that's such a piece of this that needs to change.
1: 100%. Yeah, that's really it's really striking. Um, and I think it's much clearer when you're in, in when you when you spend time in recovery community people get this, but I think that, I think it really gets lost. The more, you know what the thing that I noticed was that we've pulled health we pulled addiction treatment into healthcare right now it's covered by everyone's insurance, but what we're losing sight of is that this is not just a biochemical biomedical problem, it's also a social problem and a psychological problem and we need integrative approaches. That bring all three elements together. And I think that's what, that's where the, some of the power of recovery community has been that psychosocial piece. And it's just not something that, it's not a piece that we, that people think of, uh, in other health conditions. I think, I think we would benefit if we applied it more broadly, but it's really, I think it's critical because there's a lot of people who just can't be helped. Uh, if you don't get to, you know, if you, if you treat every problem as strictly biomedical, you're just not going to, that may work for most people, but it's not going to work for everybody. And you're going to end up with a lot of suffering uh, and illness that just doesn't get addressed.
0: Yeah. What do you think, you know, sometimes as someone who works with people in in crisis, uh, you know, every day, all day, I often wonder when I hear people talking about the opioid crisis, part of me wonders where all the other substance use fits into that, because there's still so much suffering, as, as you said, and, and destruction around alcohol, around other substances. And opioid, the opioid epidemic feels um, very topical and obviously a, you know, a huge, huge problem. I'm somebody who struggled with it myself. How do you think the rest of the substance use fits into the opioid epidemic?
1: I mean, I, like, so I totally believe it's all one thing. I think, I think the real key differences with the opioid crisis were, for the first time, we had pharmaceutical companies rather than just drug traffickers and uh, drug dealers who were actually, you know, behind it. And we also had really different-looking faces. So, I, you know, I, I, really do believe that the crack epidemic of the '90s, the meth epidemic, just didn't get as much attention because they didn't hit. You didn't see as many white faces. You didn't see teenagers in high schools dropping dead or what not waking up in the morning and you didn't see it as a problem across middle America in the same way that you saw the opioid crisis but to me they're they're all one thing which is people turning to drugs out of stress response out of shame out of you know for a whole variety of reasons but it, it all has to be dealt with as one thing and one of the things that's really striking in la in Southern California in general is that meth is a much bigger problem certainly on the street and in uh, in four communities uh, in, in 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 LA so I, I think like if we I really think this is an opportunity to for us to actually do some work on all across all these drugs and even though I use the opioid crisis as a um, I used it in my title of my book and I, I talk about it for me it's we have to use it as an entry point because people just weren't as engaged uh, when it was just cracked
0: right yeah no and and that's a obviously a, a whole other piece to this puzzle is you know it matters when it's affecting a certain group of people and it and it didn't matter as much it was you know by the time it reached you know white middle class americans oh now it's a real problem but before it was a lifestyle choice and you know looking at those different things you know, I definitely it's stark to me, it's stark has having worked in this industry a long time now, it's stark to see like, oh, now we're talk now it's interesting. you know, now now people care, which is good and and we need to use that to our advantage. but um it's interesting, you know, it is it's it's very striking to see what do you think the biggest you know thing in your in your professional community as an attorney, what is the biggest misconception that you try to Ameliorate on a regular basis within the more corporate, legal, and medical community. I mean, I, I, what
1: I constantly note is uh, there's just an enormous amount of shame uh, that people feel around their level of anxiety. I think be, being a lawyer is almost like a professional uh, anxiety is like a professional hazard. It's uh, <laughs> it's just you know we're we're, we're paid to. Worry about a problem, and then as soon as we've dealt with that problem, we have to we have to move on to the, right. the next thing to worry about. So right. I think there's a level of shame that keeps people from talking to each other, from reaching out. I think I still think there is a, a a resistance to being open with each other, and so to me the biggest, the simplest thing that we can you know to do is just to normalize the experience. And I, I really try to make an effort when I, I speak to other groups of lawyers and talk about my own experience and the way that my own Insecurity, the way that my own shame plays out, and I find, and I've had people tell me it's very affecting. I, I think, uh, I think also the other thing for me is addressing the the effect of of smartphones and technology, and the way that we really need to teach mindfulness and and get uh, get out of the the isolating effect and the stress response that uh, that I think our phones uh, and technology are playing a huge part in.
0: Can you talk a little bit about more? What what is in that piece? What do you when you you know do your talks? What do you how how do you talk about uh, phones and technology as a as a player in this? I,
1: so for me, I think part of it is like our phones keep us very isolated, right? When you when I talk to my clients who are treating trauma and helping people in, and supporting people in recovery, so much of it is being emotionally present with people. And if you ever if you walk into any space, it doesn't matter if you're on the street. You know, in a in a in a restaurant, you can be anywhere these days, and you look around, everybody's on their phone in their own uh, world, right? There was an article in the New York Times yesterday about profound levels of loneliness uh, that college students are dealing with because we have a generation that has that has really not built up the skills to interact with each other. So for me, the uh, the act of just getting off of the device and putting my and and being uh, conscious of where I put my attention and my awareness and using that. And recognizing that it's a um, that the that just you know being in my own little bubble on my phone is an unhealthy thing is a big thing. And the other piece I think is for me the other big thing with the phone is the the social media piece of just looking for validations by how many views or how many likes my latest social media post had. And I'm I'm as guilty of that as anybody. It's like we live in a time when you can really evaluate. Your audience and who's listening, and it's really dangerous. and i so I so those are two pieces of it. I mean, I think there's more, the fact that our we're constantly we're just all on that our brain state is like we don't get rest and recovery like we that we need. those are those are just some of the big issues. i could I could give you an hour on on what's <laughs> wrong with the phone and and why i'm I'm addicted to it, and I think so i I think the majority of us are, yeah, you know, just not even coming to grips yet with what it means to be have a phone addiction. The best thing to me this summer is that my kids, a couple of my kids are at summer camp and they're away from their phones. It's like, uh, I feel like uh, it's a bit, one of the biggest challenges as a parent that I personally feel.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I relate to that a lot. I actually, I just took my two-year-old twin boys to, to back east to the Berkshires and we were out on kind of a, a remote, you know, old farmhouse and the their inability to... Step to not be you know singularly engaged in technology in some way, shape, or form, or their expectation that it would always be there was was alarming to me. I really saw that you know that we are raising children to that is normal, that is so normal to them. i mean my 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 boys know how to use my phone certainly as well as I do, if not if not better.
1: I really think it's a profound challenge for all of us, but especially the kids who are growing up now. It's like I think that's going to be one of the great addiction challenges of the next uh, of the next several decades.
0: Are you working with people who are working on technology addictions?
1: A handful. It's I think that's really an area that needs a lot more attention. I mean, I've I've seen some some very you know high intensity programs that are where people are. I've had we've, we've had clients who are have are dealing with you know parents who are sending their children overseas to the U.S. to get to get treatment from internet addiction and gaming addictions. So I think it's starting. To me, what's really interesting is like we, I think it's, I think these addictions are really pervasive and they're not necessarily shutting people down to the point where they can't work at all or can't, they're just, they're, they're causing like lower level impairments. And what I'm hoping that we're going to see is more low intensity interventions to focus on mm-hmm. gaming and, and, and smartphone addiction. I, I'm seeing a little bit of it, but I think there's room for a lot more.
0: Do you find that your job is much more? Um, what's the word? Much more? Do you do you find that you play a more of a counseling role than other attorneys having you know having this knowledge and being in this industry?
1: That's it's funny that you ask that. I you know I, I I never like set out to do that, but I totally I get that all the time. I'll I'll be talking to clients who are psychotherapists or other mental health professionals, and they'll. They they'll repeatedly say to me, "You sound more like a mental health professional than yeah. any lawyer we've ever dealt with," and uh, um, and it's true. I find myself I think that's a lot of the work, right? I, I, when I work with big organizations, it's different sometimes, but I find often the work, particularly when I work with founder-led, family-owned, uh, you know, companies and businesses, and with health professionals, there's you know a lot of the work is really in a sense therapy. Yeah, and I yeah. it's definitely a big part of. of yeah, and I, I really do find that work meaningful. I think being able to have the language and the sort of skills to help people navigate the healthcare environment is, is one thing, but it's a really bigger thing to help people kind of you know, process it and put it and, 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 and deal with the stress that they're under because of the business challenge.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I love it, and I, I definitely agree. This you have the language, that you know, even when I've spoken with other attorneys, there's, a, there's a, a gap there, and it sounds like you definitely are able to, you know, make that leap into the, the recovery counseling therapeutic language, which is, which is awesome, which is such an asset to our community because our community needs someone who looks like. The people on the boards, the people making the decisions, making, you know, passing legislation. We need someone who speaks the language, but looks and talks and feels like one of them, so to speak. And so that, so that they, so that someone can translate the importance and the humanity of what is going on, you know, in this, in this problem, in this community, because it so often feels like, the people making the decisions, you know, I, I'm um, I'm in business school at Johns Hopkins, and the um, and most of my classmates are doctors. And one of the doctors, uh, he I was talking to, he's a pain management specialist in New Jersey, and I was asking him about his training in addiction, and and you know, just different getting to know him and and the process, and kind of trying to engage him on the topic of pain management, chronic pain, and addiction. And he informed me that he has no formal training in addiction at all whatsoever. And he is a Suboxone prescribing doctor. He is a pain management doctor, chronic pain management doctor. And I, it blew my mind. And and I really, and I've seen, I've, I, you know, that's just one story of many where I'm seeing the people who are making the decisions about how this is going to go are not really understanding, don't truly understand, or have training or education around what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally, I agree with you. I, I think I'll tell you, I'll, sh- you know, I'll share with you. Like I, I, uh, I was sitting in a room. This was like last September. I was invited to a meeting in D.C. and I was sitting with the head of policy at the Substance SAMSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, and uh, the head of policy from the DEA and the head of policy from National Institute of Drug Abuse. And all these people who are like, you know, office of national drug control policy, really like this high-level group of people there. The president of the AMA was there. It was very, very high-level meeting. And I, and I, as we were going around the room, it became clear to me that I was the only person in the room who had any sense of what the of what recovery community of a recovery community perspective. And often I usually come into recovery community, and I'm like the lawyer in the recovery, <laughs> you know, setting, right. but. But I found all of a sudden I, it became clear to me that there's just a real disconnect, and I think we're living in a critical time of transformation when we've made a decision. I think, in many ways, driven by the opioid crisis, that addiction treatment is part of healthcare, and I think that's fundamentally a, an important uh, decision. But what, but what the implication of that was that healthcare basically ignored addiction more or less for uh, for years, like it was treated as an, a moral problem, and we didn't have you know, the same kind of consistency in the laws from state to state of how things were, programs were licensed. We didn't have models of care uh, that were, folk, you know, that were uh, uh, kind of where there had been research, you know, that's often driven by the money, right? So because addiction treatment was sort of happening in, a, in its own world for so long, really away from insurance companies and government licensing and attention, like there were just is no, there, there's really like a huge gap to make the re- this transformation happen. And and so, I, for example, when I work with hospitals, like we can, you know, if I work with a hospital company and they have hospitals in California and Oregon, I can be pretty sure that the laws are going to be 90% the same. They're very little different. Same thing in nursing homes and in pharmacies. But all you go, you come to addiction treatment and it's a total crapshoot. Like you, in California, we still don't have any licensing uh, as of today mm-hmm. for outpatient programs, mm-hmm. period. And, and so, you know, there are states where it was illegal to have a doctor working in your program. There were states where it was required. It was just a crazy level of variation. And so I think it's, I, I'm really glad that I was able, that I've been able to play a valuable role. But I just think we, we desperately need more people involved in advocacy and, and, and really weighing in here because we're in this period of where things are changing very quickly. And I think they're changing in some ways in a positive direction to make addiction. Treatment really part of our healthcare fabric, but but there's just a lot of work to do. So I feel good about being part of it, but I just I would encourage anybody who's listening who uh, that there's a lot more work for all of us to do.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's um, that we have a lot of the same experiences in terms of just realizing that this the. People aren't really understanding, and as person who works in telehealth, understanding the all the different laws in different states, different licensures, you know, uh, tra- like the, the reciprocity issues, it's crazy. It's it, some of the stuff is you know an an, L, an LMFT can, in California can do talk therapy, but. Uh, they have to do different talk therapy in New Jersey, and you know, they don't translate. You can't do it, it's illegal to do the same thing in California. And we're talking just about talking to people. Whereas, if you have a driver's license, you can operate, you know, potentially a deadly vehicle in, in any state, you know. So, you know, we just it, it, it's it's just, you know, you sit there sometimes and just wonder, like, okay, yeah, this is this is part of the problem, you know. Yes, okay, we want to talk about you know some of the more stuff related to overdoses and that kind of thing but we have to talk about the access to treatment we have to talk about what we're what we're putting out there as solutions for people
1: 100% no, i i uh so i feel like that work is happening it's just there's so far to go and yeah
0: what do you see that um what are you needing right now in terms of help with advocacy stuff
1: we're trying a big a big piece for us has been trying to work on reducing barriers to that that differentiate MAT from other kinds of medicine. So for example, there's a law called uh, Data 2000, the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000, which makes it, you know, it requires doctors who want to be prescribing Suboxone to be, have a special waiver. Doctors have to have eight hours of training, nurse practitioners and PAs who are going to work with them and do it need 24 hours of training there's all these like heavy requirements that are just blocking MAT. So that's one area, big area of advocacy nationally that we've been working on. Uh, Another big one is... MAT is
0: is medication-assisted treatment. Sorry, I didn't mean to... (laughs) No, 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 that's okay. Just clarifying
1: for anyone. But also, uh, and the other big thing is like privacy, helping with, you know, uniform privacy compliance. The rules, the Title 42, Title 42 is the federal regulations That are specific to a substance abuse treatment. And so we've been doing work on trying to get a, uh, uh, to get a consistency with HIPAA, which is the health privacy standards that most organizations are already used to dealing with. So those have been, those have been some of the big federal issues that we've been focused on lately. And the, at a state level, you know, I'm very active in California. We're trying to get clarity on some of the issues around addiction treatment marketing when it's okay to, uh, to support people, to get discounts. One of the uh, one of the big challenges is that healthcare has built up this whole system of co-pays and deductibles and co-insurance where people have to pay for part of their care. And the challenge with addiction treatment is it leaves people totally financially depleted. The addiction ruined them. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're expected to come up with this huge amount of money. So figuring out a way to help more addiction treat, treatment programs and, and patients, you know, figure out how to, how to navigate that uh, we're working on a, on a new law that I think is going to make progress in California. Uh, we've been trying to support efforts to create a certification for uh, sober living, uh, recovery residences here in California that's passed in other places, and the outpatient, licensing of outpatient programs. That's been a big one for uh, for this year. But it, I feel like every year, as soon as we get through these issues, <laughs> I could <laughs> rattle off another side that would be right. Right behind them.
0: Great. Right. Professional warrior. I love that. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about you know we see in the news all of the criminal things and horrific things like patient brokering and different things that go on and i think i feel like sometimes that really colors how people feel about the treatment industry and people who you know who people who run it and can you talk from a legal standpoint and and when you see that kind of stuff that's going on and people going to jail for the you know the urine Scandals with the insurance companies and all these different things. From a legal standpoint, what what are you seeing that people might be interested in? I think you know, from my perspective, we've had this problem. You, you know, I've been
1: working in healthcare about twenty five years, so I've seen this problem repeat. Where there's a new billing opportunity that comes uh, comes uh comes into play. All of a sudden, insurance or Medicare somebody is paying for something new. And at the beginning, there are some, you know, innovative providers who are taking advantage of it. But then slowly, like there are profiteers, marketers who come into the and really realize that there's a massive financial opportunity and aren't motivated by improving care. Uh, you know, they really want to use it for themselves. So I saw I saw that at one point with power wheelchairs and the elderly mm. population and imaging, mm. you know, and, uh, uh, we I saw it with compounding creams for pharmacy, you know, pharmacies you know doing all and so for me, addiction urine treatment and addiction, urine testing, sorry, urine drug testing, urine drug screening in addiction treatment was like the latest chapter of Got this long running tension. And I actually I, I to be honest with you, I saw it before it ever happened in addiction treatment. The first place where it began was in workers' compensation. What happened mm. was in the in the in around two thousand five as a result of growing level of opioid dependence, these <laughs> national trade organizations started saying, "You know, doctors, you need to be worried about making sure that patients aren't drug seeking, that they're not getting. You're not just one stop on uh, on uh, when patients are getting drugs from lots of places, and, and and also not drug diverting, meaning they're not selling the drugs for yep. profit on the street. And so, so doctors, you need to start testing uh, patients, and the doctors would get in trouble if they wouldn't test. So testing started as something really valuable, but very quickly. Marketing companies got into it, and some of them were overly aggressive and driven by just to make a lot of money. And they had, you know, uh, they had sales agents out there saying, "Let's make it rain," you know, "Let's have a pee party," and doing all these crazy, <laughs> yeah. really gross. I could give you more gross marketing slogans. <laughs> yeah, my kid's oh. favorite thing, by the way, is I went on TV uh, a couple of years ago on an NBC story in Colorado, and they called me a urine specialist. That's my kid. favorite. Oh day. my I think gosh! that was it, the most single most embarrassing. Uh,
0: A urine Uh,
1: specialist. That said about me.
0: All Uh, that, all those years, all that school, and you're a urine specialist. Yeah.
1: So no, so so you know the bottom line is, look, I I think it's urine drug testing plays a valuable role, but it's been horribly abused, and I think we need to really draw a distinction between the people who knowingly uh, were abusive and a level of ignorance that I think existed in the addiction treatment space where people who came out of themselves came out of recovery and were looking for how to grow and support their organizations were using it and they they were and i think a lot of people i think there's a lot of people whose intentions were good right they were trying to figure out how to provide housing for people in recovery they were and they they started using uh, urine drug testing and i'm not i'm not justifying that choice i just think that it was it was more out of uh, not really understanding that this was going to be an issue that insurance companies were going to come back and rightfully Claim to be fraudulent in some cases and abusive in others. So I think now, you know, that, I think that that door is closing and any, it's too, it's not, we're now in 2019. It doesn't, you can't claim that you didn't know that this was a problem. But I think, I mean, I've seen, I've seen, I've spent the last 10 years working on urine drug cases and I've seen a lot of people just unaware um, that this is part of a pattern. You know, this is something that insurance companies correctly regard as abusive and and so I think that that, that, that was like a, an opportunity where some people got rich, some people are going to jail. Um, yeah. and unfortunately a lot of people who needed addiction treatment are finding it harder because programs were built on right. urine drug diagnostic right. revenues that, that can't, uh, can't, they can't survive anymore. So, so I think, uh, yeah, I think we, I think we're kind of living through the last chapters of it and we're going to see some more ugly stories, but, um, I think I guarantee you there will be something else that will take the place of your own drug testing.
0: Well, no, that's helpful. It's definitely helpful to you see the continuity of it within all of healthcare and you know, the focus has been so much on you know the deviance in our industry. so it's 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 very helpful to get perspective on it that this is just the way it goes it's something you know, it's something is incentivized and used until until it's completely broken,
1: yeah, unfortunately, it's I, that's just part of healthcare. It's just I think addiction treatment just had so many people not being, coming into addiction treatment from their own recovery experiences and not coming out of, you know, working right. with doctors or working homes. Right, right. Ones. I, yeah. It, believe me, there's plenty of other bad stuff being done.
0: Oh, yeah, in, oh, yeah. Uh, there's, <laughs> in all of healthcare. So I want to talk about one more thing before we talk about the event coming up. As a parent, how old are your children?
1: My my kids, I have four kids, 18, 16, 13, and 11.
0: Oh, wow, okay. So... As a parent, you know, raising kids in this environment, what is the thing that most concerns you with regard to the opioid epidemic that, you know, all of the drugs and substance use, what is the thing that you see as the most concerning in your own life and with that of your your children?
1: You know, I think I, think I grew up in a time when I think my parents, and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, were like, we were, I was largely sheltered from real drug use. Like I think when uh, my parents came into contact with people who were, had become addicted to heroin and other drugs that they just, I, they kept it away from me. So I, to me, the thing that I, I see is uh, I just, I can't, I can't go to any more funerals of, you know, 16 year olds and, and 18 year olds and, and, and young people. I mean, it's, it's it's bad when anyone dies, but the number of kids dying are just, it's just horrific. So I, I think we're living in a time when as parents, we need to talk to our kids. It has to be age appropriate, but we need to, we really need to let them know, you know, that this is not something, that there's a difference between taking, having a beer and uh, uh, particularly with regard to teenagers and, and taking uh, a, a puff of, uh, of, a, of somebody's uh, vape and doing anything that's going to uh, put you close to Opioids or other, uh, or other any kind of pills. And I think that that's one big piece for me. And the other is just really like, you know, I've spent time, my wife thinks I'm insane, but I've been talking to my kids about my own anxiety and my own daily, you know, insecurities for a long time. And I really think that we, I think we need to change how we parent. I think, I think we grew up in the age of like tough love. Like, I don't know how many after school, you know, TV shows I watched (laughs) where, it was all about tough love, and like the bottom line is like I've seen too, I've had too many friends and too many people who I work with have and and people who became you know really driven on this issue after after their kids died, and I think like we're living in a time when we need to keep our kids alive, and that means being being real with them about the risks, and also trying to really help empower them and give them tools to to understand these issues. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, that to me is if I had one message for parents or other parents, that's, it's not, I, I definitely, no one's going to hold me up as parent of the year, but those are, those are, that's what I've done. And I, and I feel good about it, uh, in spite of any other shortcomings that, um, I, my wife would be ready to tell you about if she was on this podcast.
0: <laughs> oh man. It's good to know that marriage is the same across you know, across the world, it's just and it's always the way it goes. But um, I love that, and I think that's um, I think that's really important. Learning how we speak to our children becomes their internal voice.
1: Yeah, I don't, and I, by the way, I think there's a whole new need for more for for a parenting literature for today. Because yes. I think I think this is a piece. Some of the stuff is just really new um, in terms of the risk to our kids and and the current environment. Um, coming back to technology, I think we that's an area where we we can use. I don't claim to be a parenting expert, but I think we we need to uh, we need we need to help keep our kids alive.
0: Yeah, yeah. What a crazy, crazy thought. Um, just to keep them alive. You and I are doing an event in West L.A. Wednesday, July 24th, at Nelson Hardeman, your law firm, called America's Opioid Crisis. Where do we go from here? What drove you to? I mean, we've talked a little bit about your passion, but this this event in particular. So,
1: yeah, I'm I'm so excited about this event. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be some really interesting stuff. So the 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 genesis of this event was Health uh, 2.0. Jessica Santana is the uh, the local coordinator for Health 2.0, which is a global organization about disruption in healthcare and technology. And so the question. So so when she asked me. You know what I thought would be interesting. I said we should get some innovators in the room who are really thinking through how do we innovate around uh, around the opioid crisis and addiction and pain. And so I know you're coming, uh, which is awesome because I think Lion Rock is doing some really uh, innovative things that people need to know about. Uh, Matthew Stout from Applied VR is coming, and they are uh, Applied VR is a, a local company that's been working with virtual reality as a therapeutic for Mental health and addiction. So cool. They've got some really cool stuff to share. And then the the, the third panelist is going to be Dr. Stephen Grinstead, who I've worked with for a couple of years, and who I think is just a really important voice on on working with the hardest cases of um, people in in chronic pain and and co-occurring you know addiction, mental health issues. And so he's just one of this one of these people who I think is. Uh, Really understands like the big picture work, so I, I'm really excited to hear about Lion Rock, to hear about applied VR, and to share perspectives on how we work on these hardest cases. I, and I, I think it's going to be a great day. I, I've already been getting. I found out uh, they, that we have people out of state who can't be there who want to come. We're going to try and oh, wow. figure out a a, a film, yeah, uh, a lead for it. So it's it's getting we're getting great response, and I'm really excited to be part of it. and Excited to hear what your you know your perspective and what Lion Rock is doing.
0: Yeah, I'm so honored to have been selected and and be a part of this. And I sometimes pinch myself that you know somehow I became someone that people want. You know that how how did I go from you know the opioid addict to someone who you know is doing something in this in this world to make it better? And uh, it's that's really exciting. And using VR as as a therapy is just you know, with um, with Matthew Stout is just... I'm so excited to hear about that. And, and I do think chronic pain is such an issue. I mean, we deal with so many people who come in who are seeking telehealth help because they can't go anywhere because they're in so much pain. And so many... Programs are not equipped to deal with the complications of, and, and completely understandably, the complications of this person is in significant real pain that needs to be treated, and they're addicted to opiates, and and that's you know it's it's a complicated situation to to sort through.
1: It, no, it's it's uh, it's really tough. These, I mean, this is this this is a, just a massive uh, crisis, and, and I think these are. I think we're getting. What's exciting to me about this program is we're getting to. How do you work with the hardest cases and uh, the work that's just that that other providers aren't able to do? I'm really excited. I, the last time I saw applied VR technology was a few years ago, and when they were starting, and I tried it myself, and it was it was it's pretty uh, pretty amazing. I'm really excited to see. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, Matthew will bring some demos because it's 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 there's like the, the ability of, to use VR uh, technology to actually get to the, to address issues like pain and addiction is just, um, you know, could really be a, a, a breakthrough um, in terms of reaching uh, just a huge number of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love, I love what Health 2.0 is doing mm-hmm. with regard to that in terms of the intersection of technology, healthcare, and addiction. It's so fascinating to me. And just when I think that, um, you know, oh my gosh, it couldn't get any more creative people come out with something different. So I, I just it's really cool. Where can people get more information about this event that's going on July twenty fourth?
1: Wait, let me I, I I should have known that you are going to ask me that and pulled up the website. I know if you Google if you Google Health 2.0 and uh, Nelson Hartman, it pulls up but um it's let on the it. main the main website is on Eventbrite and it's
0: uh, Okay let's see. Okay, so it is, if you go to... So this event is going to be in Los Angeles at 5.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It is a... At at our
1: offices, which is 1100 Glendon Avenue on the 15th floor. This is in uh, Westwood Village in Los Angeles. So um, yeah, I hope people will come out for it. And if you Google Health 2.0 and Nelson Hardiman this event will probably will be the first link that pops up.
0: Yep, yep, it's right there. Awesome. And where can people get your book, "The United States of Opioids: A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain"?
1: So it's available. The book's available in all in a, about a, two hundred bookstores around the country, but it's uh it's on Amazon. I don't mean to shill for Amazon, but I am always <laughs> really happy when people leave uh, reviews in Amazon. I've learned that that is that's the currency of my uh, my validation as an author. There so, you go. Uh, there you go. Yes.
0: Um, so there you go. Awesome. Harry, thank you so much for coming on. And, and I know you're a busy man and I really, really appreciate hearing um, your opinion and, and your, your experience.
1: No, my really my pleasure, Ashley. Really a great pleasure to be with you.
0: We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Take care. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you.